Well, the citizens of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, better known as North Korea, have never known a day of freedom. Now, of course, they would never say that. For one thing, if they did, they would likely find themselves in a work camp or in a mass grave. But for another thing, there are many in North Korea who actually believe that they live in the freest, most glorious nation this world has ever known under the wise and benevolent rule of their supreme leader, Kim Jong-un, the third generation of the Kim dynasty around whom the North Koreans have constructed a cult of personality and whom they revere as a kind of demigod. Now, of course... Such citizens do not know any better, for the North Korean government strenuously controls all information flowing in and out of the DPRK, and they produce a constant barrage of propaganda which functionally brainwashes its citizens, ensuring that they remain loyal and productive. The history of North Korea has not been pretty. After a series of regional conflicts around the turn of the 20th century, the Korean peninsula was occupied by the Japanese from 1910 until the end of World War II in 1945. Having been plundered by the Japanese for 35 years, the citizens of Korea experienced liberation at the hands of the Allied forces. At least some of them did. Because when the war ended... The Korean Peninsula was divided into two along the 38th parallel, with the United States occupying the southern half and the Soviet Union occupying the northern half. However, the Cold War erupted in the aftermath of World War II, destroying any hope of a unified Korea. While South Korea adopted the American model of representative democracy and free market capitalism, and soon became one of the most prosperous nations in all of Asia, North Korea adopted the Soviet model of communism, and Kim Il-sung was named the chairman of the People's Committee for North Korea. Now, Kim Il-sung was not content with a divided Korea. He desired to unite all of Korea under his socialist regime. And fearing an invasion from the anti-communist South, he successfully lobbied Joseph Stalin for support of an invasion of South Korea, which occurred on June 25, 1950, leading to the outbreak of the Korean War. The United States, led by, or the United Nations rather, led by the United States, came to South Korea's defense, and they quickly drove the North Korean forces back, advancing through North Korea all the way to the Chinese border where they were met by the Chinese military who joined the fray. And the resulting conflict was long and bloody and ended with an armistice on July the 27th, 1953, which basically restored the border along the 38th parallel and established the demilitarized zone, the DMZ, which still divides the peninsula today. By 1956... Kim Il-sung had consolidated his power and was the unquestioned dictator of the socialist state. And although the official name of the country is the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, it is in actuality an absolute monarchy with an inherited dictatorship. 
The Kim dynasty wields absolute power over every citizen and over every industry. It is a military state which survives on an ultra-ethnic nationalism. The fall of the Soviet Union in 1991 and a devastating flood in the mid-90s led to widespread famine and a near-total collapse of North Korea's infrastructure and economy, which left a large percentage of the already impoverished populace to starve. But by far the worst aspect of the North Korean regime is their abysmal human rights record. The Human Rights Watch calls North Koreans, quote, some of the world's most brutalized people. All aspects of daily life are controlled by the state. Amnesty International reports severe restriction of rights, including arbitrary arrests and detentions, the denial of freedom of movement, freedom of expression, freedom of the press. The State Security Department routinely arrests tortures, imprisons, and executes without due process those suspected of political crimes or disloyalty to the state, a number which includes a large percentage of Christians. Based upon satellite images and testimonies of defectors, Amnesty International estimates that presently some 200,000 political prisoners and their families are held in six large detention camps where up to 40% of the population die of starvation. My eyes were opened to the horrors of life in North Korea by a book I read a few years ago entitled The Orphan Master's Son by Adam Johnson, a book which won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction in 2012. It's, it's an absolutely haunting story, and if you want to get an albeit fictionalized glimpse of what I'm talking about, I would recommend it to you. Now, I want you, as best as you can, with that background, to try to imagine yourself a citizen of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Your entire life has been spent under those conditions due to Military and political maneuverings of which you are totally unaware, the government collapses, the borders come down, and the United States Army comes roaring over the DMZ. The U.S. Navy and the Marines land on the eastern shore, and overhead the U.S. Air Force provides air cover, and you stand beside the road in absolute bewilderment at the scene unfolding before you. The DPRK has fallen. The Kim dynasty is finished. And your entire life, you've been taught to hate and to fear the United States. But as they provide food and, and build roads and adequate housing and invest in infrastructure and industry and initiate education reform and enact labor laws, you, you experience tremendous cognitive dissonance between what you've heard about the U.S. and what you are now witnessing. For the first time in your entire life, there is sufficient food, a stable home, an eight-hour workday, a weekend, the potential for upward mobility, and a real voice and a real vote in a real democratic Korea. You are free. 
free from arbitrary imprisonment and torture, free from the fear of extrajudicial executions, fear from the, free from the fear of being found disloyal to the state, free from the fear of starvation, free to live and to grow and to prosper. Now, ignoring for the moment the obvious oversimplification of such a scenario... And, and just glossing over the geopolitical difficulties which would attend to such an idyllic scene, not the least of which are the fact that China and Russia would never allow it to happen. Also glossing over the rather bald American exceptionalism and savior complex with the, which this hypothetical scenario perpetuates, I open with this little thought experiment as a way of trying to grasp something of the language and the emotional force of this morning's text. In Romans 5, 12-21, Paul speaks of two distinct reigns, two distinct regimes, if you will. The first is introduced in verses 12-14, through 14, and it is the reign of death. Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Now, we examined that passage last Sunday and saw that it refers to the sin of Adam, the first man, the the covenant head and representative of the human race, who were God's unique image bearers. And when Adam turned from the obedience of faith and when he declared independence from God, sin entered into God's good creation and it infected the human race. And because the wages of sin is death, because to turn from the creator of life is to choose death, death spread to all humanity. And as we saw last week, this is because Adam stood before God as the representative of the human race such that his sin was our sin, his guilt was our guilt, his penalty is our penalty. This is much like your representatives in Washington or Jefferson City represent you in the way that they vote. Their vote is your vote. This is the cause, this is the source of all of the suffering and the misery and the bloodshed which mars the pages of human history. Every evil, every disease, every death flows from this poisonous fountain. North Korea exists as it does because of Adam's sin. Death has reigned over the entire human race since its inception because of Adam's sin. Like the citizens of North Korea, we have never known a day of freedom. And even though Paul in this passage personifies death, saying that it is death who reigns. We know that death is but a weapon wielded by a ruthless dictator whose name is Satan, who keeps his citizens in subjection through the fear of death, says Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. But there is hope. 
even in the beginning, even before God cast Adam and all of his descendants out of the garden, he promised the coming of a redeemer. A Messiah who would crush Satan under his feet, who would tear down Satan's kingdom, who would deliver captives from the reign of death, and who would establish his own reign of grace. This Redeemer, this liberator of the captives, is Jesus Christ, and it is his victory over sin and death and Satan that we celebrate this week. On Friday night, We focused upon the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, which was the means by which he secured that victory. It was through death that Jesus destroyed him who has the power of death. And so verses 15 to 17 of Romans 5 focus upon the achievement of Christ's obedience unto death, which is far greater, much more, Paul says, than the devastation which was wrought by Adam's disobedience. Look with me at verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following the one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ." Paul is saying that because of Adam's disobedience in the Garden of Eden, when he turned away from God and said, not thy will, but my will be done, sin and death reigns over all humanity. But because of Jesus' obedience in a second garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, when he turned toward God and said, not my will, but thy will be done, righteousness and life reign over a new humanity. Because Adam went up to the forbidden tree and ate of its fruit on behalf of all of his descendants, all mankind were made sinners and were cast down from their high position as God's image bearers and his vice regents who ruled over God's good creation. But because Jesus went up to that forsaken tree, was hung upon it, and there ate of its bitter fruit on behalf of his people, a new humanity receives the gift of righteousness and will reign in life through Jesus Christ. That's how the parallel works that Paul is developing here. This morning we're going to focus upon verses 18 to 21, in which Paul completes his comparison between Adam and Christ. And he brings this whole passage to a soaring conclusion. Look at verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, 
So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You were born into this world under the reign of death, ruled by sin, the captive of Satan. Some of you here today are still under that bondage, and some of you know it. Others are of you are deluded by the world's propaganda that you actually imagine that your bondage is freedom and that your misery is joy. Today, I announce to you that there is a redeemer of captives. There is a sovereign who reigns in grace. He has defeated sin and death and Satan by his own atoning death at the cross, and he has risen to life again. And he has brought you here this morning and sent me to you with his message of peace and liberation. And so I invite you this morning to listen to it closely and to embrace his reign in order that you may be truly free. So what is this message of peace? What is this gospel? And how ought you to respond to it? The Bible says that Satan is the father of lies and he exercises his reign by means of deception or propaganda, if you will. Jesus Christ, on the other hand, is the truth, and he reigns by means of the truth. So in order to be free indeed, you must renounce Satan's lies and embrace Jesus as the truth. And this morning, I'm going to bring to you four gospel truths to counteract this world's delusive lies. Truth number one. You are condemned for Adam's disobedience. Now this may sound like a strange way to begin what at least appeared like it was going to be a message of good news, but it is a necessary starting point. In order to enter into the glory and enjoy the freedom afforded by the liberation of the DPRK, our hypothetical citizen that we imagined a few minutes ago would first have to acknowledge that he indeed lived under a tyrannical reign of death and he would have to renounce his allegiance to the Kim dynasty. Because so long as he believed that propagandist lie, the U.S., that the U.S. was an enemy and the supreme leader was a wise and benevolent demigod, he would resist liberation and he would fight tooth and nail in order to preserve the old order. And that is precisely what many sinners do in this life. So before you can embrace the liberation that comes from the reign of grace, you must first admit that you are in bondage to death. And furthermore, you must admit that you are complicit in death's reign. In verses 18 and 19, Paul takes all that he has said in the previous six verses and he encapsulates it into two parallel summary statements. In other words, verses 18 to 19 are the summaries, the conclusion of this whole Adam-Christ passage. Look again at verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. 
For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now I want to focus in this first point upon the first half of each comparison. The half that deals with the devastating effect of Adam's sin. Paul makes two statements regarding the effect of Adam's sin upon the human race, which paint a a pretty bleak picture of the human condition. The beginning of verse 18, he says, One trespass led to condemnation for all men. And beginning of verse 19, he says, By one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Those two statements, in essence, make the same claim about you and me. Namely, that we were born into this world already condemned. In a state of condemnation because of Adam's sin. Now that is an extraordinarily difficult claim for red-blooded Americans raised on a culture of rugged individualism to accept. But it is absolutely essential to your understanding of the gospel. So let me make this absolutely clear so that there's, there's no ambiguity in what I'm saying. When Adam turned away from the obedience of faith in the garden at the dawn of the ages, when he declared independence from God and said, not thy will, my will will be done. When he committed treason against the Almighty, God considered all of humanity that would come forth from him as being complicit in his rebellion. God gathered all of mankind into Adam, whom he condemned and sentenced to death, and therefore all mankind is likewise condemned and under the sentence of death. But how can that be? How can I be condemned, found guilty, punished, For the sin of another. Isn't that unjust? Well, I was asked that very question two weeks ago. And my answer was and is, no, it is not unjust. And it is not unjust for two reasons. The first is simply because God is God. And the only way he could act unjustly would be to violate his own nature, which he will not, indeed cannot, do. In other words, God is not beholden to some external standard of justice outside of himself, least of all ours. There is no higher standard of morality above God by which God may be held accountable. There is no one to put God on trial. There is no higher standard by which to charge him with wrongdoing and say to him, what have you done? Simply put, just is whatever God is and whatever God does. Justice is whatever conforms with God's holy character. Therefore, when God created and constituted humanity, he did not create seven and a half billion isolated individuals. Rather, he created a man and a woman and constituted all humanity in them. And he enacted a covenant 
which would define his relationship with all humanity, with Adam acting as the covenant head or representative on behalf of all of his offspring, all of us. That is how God did it, and he was acting justly simply because that's how he determined it was going to be done. Now again, I I admit freely that what I've just said is a radically God-centered way of viewing the world. And that it goes completely against the grain of our culture, which views God as the servant of mankind rather than as mankind's sovereign. But I contend to you that that is where you must start if you are to embrace the freedom of of the reign of grace which God so freely and graciously offers to you. Adam sinned as your representative and on your behalf. God counted Adam's sin as your sin, his guilt as your guilt. When God condemned Adam to death, you were sentenced to death as well. And it's only when you awaken to this dreadful reality that the gospel will appear to you as good news. And it is good news. It is unbelievably good news. And that's where the second half of verses 19 and 20 come in. The other side of the comparison between Adam and Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now again, Paul makes two statements regarding the effect of Christ's righteousness upon a new humanity which God is constituting by means of a new covenant. Those two statements are these. One act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. By one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And again, those two statements are in effect making the same claim. Namely, that by virtue of the obedience of Jesus, sinners who were condemned in Adam may be justified in Christ. Now I mentioned a bit ago that there were two reasons why it is not unjust for God to condemn you and me for the sin of Adam. The first reason I gave was that God is God and that all of his ways are just and right. But the second reason is because God had redemptive designs in organizing humanity, not individually, but covenantally. In the same way, Paul says, just as or even as God treated all humanity in Adam, so God treats a new humanity in Christ. In the same way that Adam stood as the covenant representative of all humanity in the garden, so Christ stood as the covenant representative of a new humanity at the cross. In the same way that Adam disobeyed and the many were accounted sinners, so Christ obeyed and the many are accounted righteous. In the same way that Adam sinned and all humanity was condemned, so Christ was righteous and a new humanity is justified. In other words, you cannot have one without the other. Either God deals with all humanity individually or God deals with all humanity covenantally. 
You cannot say it is unjust for God to condemn you for the sin of Adam without at the same time saying that it is unjust for God to justify you for the righteousness of Christ. And if you would enter into and embrace and enjoy the reign of grace, then you must also embrace this covenantal structure of humanity. You must acknowledge before God, I am condemned in Adam but I may also be justified in Christ. I believe that is how God relates to man, and so that is how I will relate to God. But there are many who resist this covenantal relationship. Be it pride or some warped sense of individualized justice or whatever the case may be, many people steadfastly resist both sides of that equation. They resist being condemned in Adam And they want no part of being justified in Christ. I will stand or fall on the basis of my own merits. Thank you very much. Such is the cry of many. That's where verse 20 comes in and totally undercuts that individualism. Paul says there, now the law came in to increase the trespass. You know, from the very beginning, man has been trying to relate to God on the basis of our own human merit. That was true with Adam and Eve, who responded to their sin-exposed nakedness by sowing fig leaves into a paltry and insufficient covering. That was true of Cain, who brought before the Lord the fruit of his labors, the sweat of his own brow. In both instances, their works were utterly rejected by God. This innate tendency of man, when confronted with the need to be reconciled to our Creator, is to try to earn or achieve or to merit God's blessing. Think of the rich young ruler who came up to Jesus and said, Good teacher, what good thing must I do in order to inherit eternal life? He's not operating covenantally. He wants to stand before God as an individual to stand or to fall on the basis of his own merits. So what did God do? What did Jesus do? Jesus gave him law in order to increase his trespass. It never works. It never works to try to stand before God on the basis of your own merit, your own goodness, your own righteousness, your own good works. Why? Because the damage is already done. The trespass has already been committed. The treason is already complete. Furthermore, sin is not something merely outside of us, something that happened long ago in a garden far away. Sin is something inside of us, which which we cannot overcome and from which we cannot hide. When Adam sinned, it was not just his guilt that was imputed to us. An evil nature was transmitted to us via inheritance to every one of his descendants. We cannot evade the guilt of the sins already committed, and we cannot cease to commit sin. We are, every one of us, sinners both by nature and by choice. That's the state of every man, and that's your state this morning. Yet we we remain blindly ignorant of this truth, imagining that we can be good, imagining that if we just try hard enough, we can please God with our good works. 
That's why God gave the law. The law was given to increase the trespass. Now, why would God want to do that? I thought God hated sin. Why would he want more of it? Well, God does hate sin, and that's why he wants it exposed. Sin remains hidden until it finds an outlet, until it's revealed. The law does that. It is only when confronted with the law, do not covet, that our innate and already present discontent and covetousness are revealed for what they are. It is only when confronted with the law, do not steal, that our innate greed and materialism, which are already present, are revealed for what they are. It is only when the law comes and says, do not commit adultery, that our innate lust is revealed. It is only when confronted with the law, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself that the true nature of our heart is revealed for what it actually is, namely a heart that loves itself above all others. The law increases the trespass by turning sin into transgression, by bringing our sin nature out of the dark cavern of our hearts and out into the light where it may be dealt with and healed. William Hendrickson wrote that a magnifying glass does not increase the number of dirty spots, but it does make them stand out more clearly and brings to light some that the naked eye could not see. So it is with the law and with sin. You cannot merit salvation. You are not good enough for God. You must own up to that fact if you are to embrace the reign of grace. The law was given in order that you might know that you can't merit salvation. You can't earn it. The doing of good is not in you. The foundational command of the law is that you must love and trust and honor and obey and enjoy God with all of your heart, and you can't do it. You are enslaved to self-love. Sin is an evil tyrant who rules over you with ruthless power, yet the most insidious part of it all is that it convinces you that you are actually free. The law was given in order to reveal your bondage, in order to show you your sin, because it is only when you renounce sin, including all attempts at meriting salvation, that you are then ready to be ruled by grace. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul says there is a power stronger than sin. There is a power greater than death. Though through the long centuries, sin increased upon the earth, spreading like a cancer, corrupting, destroying everything in its path. Though Satan grew strong and wealthy on the misery of his captives, God's plan was not thwarted. Though sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. 
Though judgment fell, mercy would triumph. Though death reigned, life would overcome. Now, it didn't look that way on the Friday of Passover. On the Friday of Passover, it looked as if sin had won. It looked as if death had conquered. It looked as if humanity's best and last hope had failed. The Redeemer, the Messiah, who had come into the world to save the world and to, and to bring it back to God, was rejected by the world. He came to His own, and His own received Him not. And on the Friday of Passover, it looked as if their rejection of Him was complete. He who was supposed to crush the serpent's head was Himself crushed to death. In the stormy midday darkness that descended upon the earth as the Son of Man hung bruised and bloodied and lifeless upon the cross, it looked as if sin had consolidated its power and that death would reign forever. Nothing now stood between fallen man and everlasting damnation but a few short years of misery and suffering and thorns and thistles. All hope was lost on Friday of Passover, or so it seemed. Because at the break of dawn on Sunday morning, there was a tremendous rumbling. The earth began to shake, and there was a loud crack as the gates of death were shattered, and the, and the veil between heaven and earth was rent in two. And the angel of the Lord descended from heaven, and he rolled the heavy stone away from the tomb, and out of the grave emerged the Lord of life. The forces of darkness fled before him and the powers of sin found themselves suddenly disarmed. The king of grace had returned to establish his reign and there was none who could stand before him. And how is his reign exercised? Through fear and coercion? The way death had exercised its reign? No. His reign is exercised through righteousness through justification, through free and abundant pardon leading to eternal life. What does this mean? Well, let me illustrate it from the way that the King of Grace conquered Peter, who three days earlier had denied three times that he even knew him. Ask yourself, when the king of grace appeared to the disciples that evening, what did he do with Peter? Did he, did he slay him where he stood for his disloyalty? Did he send him off to a labor camp to be re-educated? That's how the dictators of this world exercise their reign. No. The king of grace smiled at Peter. And he pardoned him. And he raised Peter up from his knees and he embraced him. And he said, peace be to you. That's how the king of grace reigns. Where sin increased, Peter denies Christ once and then twice and then three times, this time with oaths and cursing. Where the reign of sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Simon, do you love me? Feed my lambs. Simon, do you love me? Tend my sheep. Simon, do you love me? Feed my sheep. As sin reigned in death, think Judas, 
broken and lifeless on the rocks, a noose around his neck and a broken branch by his side. As sin reigned in death, so grace also reigns through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Think Peter sitting around a campfire eating breakfast with the king of grace, smiling and laughing and feeling altogether clean. Who would you rather have reign over you? Sin and death or the king of grace through his justifying righteousness leading to eternal life? Christ died and rose again to liberate you from the tyranny of sin and from the reign of death. He died and rose again in order to become your king of grace and to rule over you through righteousness to eternal life. So this morning you must ask yourself, who will you have to reign over you? The king of grace is alive and present to pardon you for your sins, to free you from sin's tyranny and from death's stranglehold and to reign over you in righteousness and peace and joy and life. Here's the gospel. You were condemned in Adam, but you may be justified in Christ. You cannot merit this salvation. So you must embrace the King of Grace. Embrace Him now. Call upon Him in faith. Surrender yourself to His reign. And live.